I'm happy to be here to be able to be part of this uh, very interesting uh, series of talks and look forward to the conversations it creates over lunch and dinner uh, as well. Last December, uh, the Perspectives in Science and Christian Faith had three very, very interesting articles, all with kind of a common question in mind, and that had to do with the whole uh, issue of what, if anything, does information imply about uh, evolution and about the origin of life. And what I'd like to do today is to, to take some of the ideas from those papers uh, and sort of examine those and try to see uh, if we can move this conversation forward with regard to what are the implications of, of information. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to share three different sort of summary comments from each of those papers. And in fact, all three of them have a common uh, element to them, which I think is, uh, is quite interesting. And that is that the, the environment is full of information and DNA is basically a means of uh, drawing, drawing that information and incorporating it into things that then create new kinds of living uh, systems uh, over time. Uh, and I think that has a lot of merit. Uh, I think one of the real questions then is when you say, how much information does it take to make it look like uh, some sort of intelligent design? Uh, I think it depends a lot on how easy it is to incorporate information from the environment uh, into the DNA molecule. And I think part of the sort of uh, controversy over the last uh, 10 to 15 years having to do with uh, evolution and more recently the origin of life has to do with this whole question of how much is enough. Some people say that uh, it's too much to have happened uh, uh, by pure natural processes. Others say, well, uh, uh, it, it isn't at all. There's lots of information out there and we just have to uh, sequester it from the environment. I'm going to put this down a little bit. Stephen is taller than me. Okay, but I'm a mechanical engineer, so I shouldn't be able to. At least I work in mechanical engineering departments. Okay, so let me mention three different, uh, yeah, the three different papers, and let me simply share some comments from those, and then what I'd like to do is to spend my time sort of uh, uh, using this as a springboard for conversation about this whole question of information and what, if anything, does it imply. Uh, Randy uh, Isaac, who is the director, as you know, of ASA, uh, wrote a very, very interesting paper called Information, Intelligence, and the Origin of Life. Uh, Stephen Freeland, who just spoke, wrote a paper called The Evolutionary Origins of Genetic Information. Uh, and uh, biological information, molecular structure, and the origins debate was written by Jonathan Watts, who I don't think is here. Uh, but wrote also, and I thought all three of these papers are very interesting, very well done, certainly very thought-provoking in, in the December uh, 2011 issue. If you haven't read these, I would encourage you to go back and read them because they'll give you a lot more depth to this discussion than we can give in our brief presentations. Freeland's prem premise, which I uh, happily uh, noted he concluded with in this talk, so I got the right premise out of his paper. A biological evolution describes a natural process that transfers information from a local environment uh, into the chemical known as DNA. And I think that's uh, put about as well as you can put it. This whole idea of, of, of mutation natural selection uh, is really uh, that uh, transfer means by which uh, uh, information from the environment can be uh, incorporated into the DNA molecule. Uh, quoting from uh, a 
portion of his paper, many biologists perceive that they are able to understand exactly where life's genetic information comes from, the local environment, by thinking in terms of more fundamental and well-established definitions of information that do not involve intelligent design. Now, in a later section, uh, he clarified this, but let me uh, simply skip this slide because he's already clarified it much better with what he just presented in his presentation, so I don't need to elaborate more. Uh, well, let me, let me go ahead and mention what he says here. The reductionist description of the evolution contains little that is new scientifically, precisely because the aim of this article is to explain how classical neo-Darwinian orthodoxy addresses the issue of the origin of new genetic information. This, involved, this view of evolution is probably best known through the popular works of writers such as Dawkins, and everything written here is in true alignment with insights expressed in his books such as The Selfish Gene, The Blind Watchmaker, and the most relevant to criticisms of reductionism, uh, The Extended Phenotype. Okay, Jonathan's premise and conclusions were as follows in these articles. Additional information transfer comes from environment through unique relationship of structure and information. Uh, again, same basic idea. As a Christian, I believe deeply and thoroughly in design, but that design does not oppose the fact that both organisms and molecules can accumulate information through natural process. So again, another uh, restatement in a sense of uh, this basic idea that, that uh, the environment's full of information and that DNA becomes more information rich uh, by sequestering uh, information from the environment basically through natural selection. And then Randy Isaac's conclusion through the mystery of life's origins have not yet been solved. It seems reasonable to conclude that the inference to the best explanation is not an indeterminate intelligent agent, but processes akin to reproduction with variation in natural selection. As Christians, we have faith in the existence of an intelligent designer who utilizes the design tools of these natural processes to carry forward his creative intent. Okay, so I'd like to explore these these conclusions, which are all, I think, uh, uh, very much uh, uh, in the same uh, line of thinking uh, in, my, in our presentation. In Richard Dawkins' uh, very interesting book, Climbing Mountain Probable, it came out in 1996 at about the same time that Michael Behe's book was published. Uh, and I'm going to use a particular mountain. He used mountains in general. Uh, many years ago, when I was young and in better shape, I climbed Long's Peak. I didn't do it technically. There's a 3,000-foot cliff on this beautiful mountain in Colorado. It's the tallest mountain in Colorado. Very popular to climb. Uh, with technical climbing, you have to go up a 3,000-foot sheer cliff. And if you aren't a technical climber, then climbing Long's Peak is impossible. And he says looking at a mountain like this uh, is the way many creationists look at the problem of evolution. They see that 3,000-foot uh, uh, step, and they say, you can't possibly jump from the bottom to the top. On the other hand, like Long's Peak, if you go through the keyhole around the back side of the mountain through a whole series of, of passages that you can take, uh, you can actually get to the top of Long's Peak without any technical climbing gear. It's a long, very difficult climb. It's about 18 miles round trip. Uh, you ascend 6,000 feet, and it is a bloody hard thing to do. Uh, I've never done it since because I only wanted to do it once. And having done it once, I thought once was plenty. I took my son and my son-in-law and went part way up with them, but then I thought I'll let them go on the rest of the way by themselves. Now, there's only one way to walk up that mountain, and it's been partly made possible by some things that the park rangers have done to make it possible 
to have a path that with one step after the other, no technical climbing gear, you can go from bottom to top. Uh, in the introduction to Dawkins' book, he basically says the whole question of whether evolution uh, can happen or not depends entirely on what the shape of Mount Improbable actually is. If Mount Improbable is surrounded on all sides uh, by 3,000 foot sheer cliffs, then there's no way that evolution uh, certainly uh, in those bigger steps can actually occur. On the other hand, if in fact there are uh, single one foot steps uh, from bottom to top, uh, then one can in fact climb that uh, without uh, reference to any supernatural capacity to be able to jump up this huge enormous amount. And so at the end of the day, I think what Dawkins is saying in his book, and I think it's true of our conversation today, is a lot of, of what's possible depends a lot on what is the shape of Mount Improbable. If Mount Improbable has a shape that in fact allows maybe one or multiple, many, maybe many footpaths up to the top as some mountains do, then there's no question that you can go from bottom to top one step at a time. I think earlier in Darwin's work, he basically affirmed that we need lots of small steps. This is not a process where big, huge things happen. It's a process where many little things happen and add up to big things. And so I think it's the shape of Mount Improbable that is a very key part of the conversation that we're having as we go forward on this topic. The question is, is sequestering information from the environment simple and straightforward? Uh, when multiple mutations are necessary to provide selective advantage, how is the process selected in the intermediate steps? Okay, these are uh, questions that I think repeatedly come up. Uh, how can we demonstrate that the steps up the backside of Mount Improbable are all sufficiently small? What does the fitness landscape actually look like? Uh, is it peaks and valleys? Uh, is it islands, if you will, and uh, uh, surrounded by water? If so, how do we get through these valleys, or how do we get from one island to the next? And how about multi-component systems? How do these evolve, I think, the whole question of irreducible complexities is in, at its heart, a question of what does man improbable look like topographically. Uh, I think another important question for me as a Christian, not as a scientist, is uh, well stated in a recent book that was written by Alvin Plantica called Where the Conflict Lies, Science and Religious, uh, Science, Religion, and Naturalism. And in this uh, book, he basically makes several uh, important points. First of all, he says, Darwin, uh, the scientific theory is compatible with theism and theistic religion. Unguided Darwinism, a consequence of naturalism, is incompatible with theism, but it isn't entailed uh, by the scientific theory. It is instead a metaphysical or theological add-on. I think Plantig is pointing out that uh, it's entirely possible, and I know there's a wide bandwidth of what theistic evolutionists believe, but some uh, believe in teleology of some sort, uh, although I hear other people who claim to be theistic evolutionists who don't seem to believe in teleology at all, and I'm not quite sure then uh, what's the theistic part of their theistic evolutionary uh, uh, ideas. I think where teleology, where is teleology in the modern scientific uh, uh, synthesis of Darwin? Uh, what is the teleology in current speculation on the origin of life? Uh, all three of the authors for the three articles that I just mentioned, give very strong, clear affirmation to uh, God ultimately being responsible, uh, but uh, don't provide any uh, very specific idea of how that might be manifest. Uh, and at this point, it's fair to say that that's an open-ended, it's an open question. Uh, at this point, there isn't a simple answer to that question. But I think that to the extent that we uh, 
see uh, nature evolving in a way that uh, uh, in some ways seems quite amazing and everybody, I think the talk this morning it was terrific uh, in terms of uh, that Jack did showing what an amazing world we live in uh, and the question is how can it be so amazing uh, how did this happen uh, is a question that I think certainly suggests uh, God's crafting of either a universe that unfolds uh, without any intervention, which is a possibility. I'm not locked into one or the other. I just want to, under, to try to understand how God actually uh, has produced the amazing world in which we live. Uh, and if uh, uh, that involves putting into it a certain kind of a directional robustness that ultimately leads to complex conscious life, uh, then I think that's perfectly fine. If he did it in, uh, with some interventions along the way and I'd have no particular preference for one versus the other. Uh, fair enough, if he supernaturally oversees mutations uh, so that they're not completely random so that we have directionality, uh, I think that's again another possibility. Simon Conway Morris, uh, in his two recent books in 2003 and 2008, uh, which Freeland makes uh, reference to uh, in his paper, uh, and if you and I've heard him speak at Baylor, and he's very, very public about this. Uh, he argues that uh, Simon Conway Morris uh, was made famous by Stephen Jay Gould in his uh, book, I think, uh, Wonderful Life, uh, for which he is very grateful. But he says he takes a position in that book is quite antithetical to the one that I take. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould says if you run the tape of of uh, history of life over you would almost surely get a whole different set of uh, plants and animals and almost surely none of them would be complex conscious life such as us or complex conscious life that took some other form. Uh, Simon Conway Morris goes to a lot of uh, pains in his presentations that he makes, at least uh, on the topic he spoke on at Baylor and other places at Texas A&M as well, uh, and in these two books to point out that he feels like that, that there is a certain directionality uh, to the development and to the unfolding of life. That, in fact, uh, uh, there is, through his view in convergent evolution, lots of indications that the process is not uh, random in terms of outcome. He would argue there's lots of randomness on a local level or lots of serendipity, uh, but there's not serendipity in, the, in where the journey is going to end. And he, uh, in some personal discussions I've had with him, talks about this as as being something uh, uh, like a, uh, I'm trying to think, I'm going to misquote him. Let me tell you how I translated it. I'm not sure it's exactly how he said it. You might have a, a pattern on a surface where you have rain falling and the raindrops make their way down to uh, the river. Uh, where they end up is ultimately determined by the top topology uh, of the landscape there. Uh, the paths that they take to get there may all be different, but the destinations are ultimately determined by something else. Uh, when I was a kid growing up before the days of uh, computer games, we had pinball machines. Okay, now that's the mechanical engineering uh, alternative, and I might in add an inferior in in alternative to uh, uh, a lot of the neat electronic games that people have today. But one of the interesting things, if you were old enough to have played on a pinball machine, is no matter how you shoot the ball, uh, no matter how it transverses the table, it always ends up at the bottom. Uh, we 
even as young kids, understood the concept of gravity well enough that it wasn't a mystery. If you shimmed up the end of the table, you got a longer play, okay? Because the gravity force was weaker, and if you shimmed it up enough, you could play all day. Uh, as, as we look at, at the unfolding of life, uh, I think one of them say that God con, uh, created a universe for a purpose. And when we talk about design, I think one thing we share as Christians is design is really uh, very, very close to purpose. Because in engineering, the whole idea of design is we make something for a particular purposeful outcome uh, for potential customers. So I think that that the idea that the universe is purposeful and the uh, pinnacle of that purpose is complex conscious life to which God would have a relationship uh, indicates then that uh, there has to be some way that God's going to uh, guarantee, if you will, that outcome. And uh, much like gravity in the pinball machine, you can't see it, but on the other hand, it absolutely trumps whatever happens along the way and all the balls end up at the bottom. Does intelligent design necessarily assume divine intervention? I think a lot of times people say, I don't like the idea of intelligent design uh, because I don't like the idea of intervention. Well, I think in intervention is only one of, of uh, several different options God had for how he accomplished this. But I think at the end of the day, we have to say that there are really only three choices, intelligent design, stupid design, or, or accident. And I think ultimately we all have to say that not necessarily in the capital I, capital D sense, we believe in intelligent design, but we have to believe that God has in some ways produced in his universe uh, either a robustness that allows it to unfold with a certain in purpose uh, in mind that will ultimately be accomplished or that in some way God uh, has an influence much like the gravity on my pinball machine that will give some directionality to that. Simon Conway Morris speaks of this as a deeper design uh, as evidenced by convergent evolution. And in his deeper design, he's basically saying that if you, uh, he says very specifically, for example, if the meteor had not hit the Yucatan Peninsula and uh, wiped out a certain uh, part of the uh, animal kingdom, uh, then we would have ended up uh, producing human beings anyhow. It would have just happened in a somewhat different way along somewhat different paths. And he doesn't believe, for example, that that was itself a a necessary requirement. If it was, then uh, uh, it's, it's more serendipitous. Uh, all of the authors in the, in the different articles with regard to their treatment of the origin of life were appropriately circumspect in their speculation regarding the possible origin of life scenarios. And for that, I was very grateful. I sometimes see people writing on this topic that are way, way too sort of flippant about how easy it is to imagine and this could have happened and that could have happened. Uh, having followed this topic since about the 1970s, it's a very challenging subject. And I think people who work in the field are almost never flippant, but people who often write about it uh, who aren't uh, uh, can be so. Here are some of the origin of life questions that I think are, are very uh, challenging. How does one evolve a genetic code? Uh, I thought that Stephen's treatment of that in his article in PSCF uh, 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 was very, very interesting, and I think a good representation of where current thinking is about, uh, beginning with RNA, uh, then producing protein, uh, and protein then uh, uh, with RNA producing DNA. Um, how you evolve a genetic code, uh, again, uh, I think is, is still a very open 
question and his ideas, I think, in the, in the paper were appropriately tentative and, and well summarized the current state of affairs. How does selection work in a primordial soup? This is a really huge question because if you don't have cell walls, if you simply have a prebiotic soup, one of, I think for 40 years people have recognized this problem of cross-reactions. You put a bunch of chemicals in there, you're trying to synthesize something like an RNA molecule, you're not doing it in the lab with pristine, clear uh, chemicals that you've added so that you have a very controlled environment and only the reactants that you want. Uh, it's much more difficult to imagine in a real prebiotic world uh, where you're going to be able to avoid the uh, sort of chemical garbage and the cross-reactions uh, that can be very, very difficult. Uh, I think that the preferred theory begins with RNA producing protein and eventually DNA, and this is the one that uh, uh, Stephen also affirmed in his paper. Now, what are the difficulties with this current theory? Uh, in 1986, there was an International Society for the Study of the Origin of Life conference at Berkeley that I attended, and one of the plenary lectures there was given by uh, Robert Shapiro. Uh, he's a Harvard-trained DNA chemist who's worked his whole career, I think, at New York uh, University. And in this paper, he did something I've never seen before in all the conferences I've ever been to. There were many, many citations in the literature that uh, RNA could be synthesized under prebiotic conditions. And so what he did was to go back and to trace those citations, and it was people quoting other people, quoting other people, quoting other people, to one in 1968, one reference that had been sort of quoted by so many different people, it became sort of accepted as, as a, uh, a common knowledge. And that paper didn't say they had synthesized it, they simply said that they had thought they might have, okay? This was back when technology wasn't as good and you weren't able to maybe determine some of these things as well. But making ribose uh, in particular is extremely difficult to do under prebiotic conditions. At the end, then he went on to explain a whole bunch of other reasons why he didn't think you'd ever be able to synthesize RNA under prebiotic conditions. And at the end of his talk, 300 people there, the most active people in the world in origin of life research, not one question. The room was dead silent. Uh, and then the moderator for the conference uh, uh, stood up and said, uh, uh, well, I don't have any disagreement with anything you said, but do you have to be so pessimistic, okay? But I've never seen a conference where somebody came in and did the sort of finger in the eye to everybody in the conference and then nobody asked a question, okay? He published this in 1988, if you want to get the copy and see the complete treatment. But I think it continues to be the case that the biggest problem with RNA is not what can you do with it, but how can you actually produce it. Freeland explains clearly the problems first noted by Shapiro in synthesizing RNA, such as uh, synthesizing ribose sugar under prebiotic conditions. And again, the cross-chemical reactions are, are a huge problem, but there are others as well. Uh, I think thermal vents have been proposed as a way to get around this because there's all kinds of chemicals and lots of energy. Uh, but in an excellent paper produced by Stanley Miller, who's the guy who did the early experiments on uh, synthesizing amino acids using lightning uh, and uh, monomethane and hydrogen, uh, demonstrates very well that, that thermal vents are a very, very mixed blessing because of the high temperatures that tends to dissolve things, to break things up more than it does to cause things to go together, uh, just based on uh, chemical kinetics and thermodynamics. I am just about out of time. Let me mention just one last thing. Uh, crystalline minerals show the interesting properties 
and I'm quoting here from Freeland's article, uh, which I think is quoting Karn Smith, or at least paraphrasing Crystal minerals show the interesting property of her, uh, harnessing energy from the environment to grow by making copies of themselves. As they do this, they are creating chemical order out of chaos. This is exactly what a salt crystal is doing as you watch water, uh, salt water evaporate. Uh, Karn Smith uh, actually was a roommate at a Gordon con conference one time. He's actually from Scotland, a very interesting fellow. He's been promoting this idea for 40 years, but without ever providing what I think of as any evidence. Uh, I think the problem with this idea of using minerals is, first of all, minerals uh, such as clays have order, but they don't have complexity. I don't know how you get sequencing out of clay minerals. And people have been speculating on this for years and years. But if you take a crystal, a crystal has a very, very low uh, degree of information or order. Uh, the information implicit in a, a sequence of amino acids or in uh, uh, your nucleotides and DNA uh, is much, much higher. And so it may be it's a way of getting uh, molecules to combine just by proximity. The idea that it can also provide any help in sequencing uh, is, I think, much more problematic. Well, how did life begin? Some accidental pass through this incredible maze of chemical difficulties guided by the weak force of selection is a sufficient cause to explain the remarkable origin of life. And I would say, really, uh, God has designed the universe with the emergence of life as an inevitable outcome by providing in his design the necess necessary chemical pathways through the maze to guarantee it will happen. I think at this point in time, uh, it really is uh, an open question. If you saw the end of uh, the movie Expelled, Dawkins, I think, explained uh, very well the current state of affairs. And then he said, it, life must have come from someplace else, maybe. And of course, it had to have evolved there. Because at the end of the day, it always has to have evolved. Okay, It has to have happened in some more accidental way. Uh, well, let me simply stop here and say I think that it's an open question. Uh, how teleology uh, is manifested in physical reality. I think that it, as a Christian, for me, I'm not so concerned about how God did it, but I'm very concerned that it did not happen in a way uh, that would simply preclude, uh, in a sense, God's involvement. And I think at this point, uh, uh, we still have lots to learn. I think that the, day that the devil is in the details, uh, and we don't have enough details to be able to affirm that one way or the other. It's entirely possible that the answer to this question is beyond the reach of science. Uh, it may well it may well be, but at this point in time, I think it's a, a very interesting and important area for further investigation. And uh, so, let me just conclude that so we have at least a couple of time for a couple of questions. Stephen. Well, yeah, 
maybe sequestering. Yeah, he, sequestering was my word, not his, and it may not be the best term, but I think that we would agree on the idea that if you have mutations and they change your uh, adaptability to your environment, then the ones that are good uh, are going to be kept. The ones that are detrimental are going to be uh, erased. Uh, and as a result, then, the uh, information in the DNA becomes, in some sense, more optimized uh, with regard to its environment. So at this point, uh, if you don't like the term sequestering, I wasn't trying to imply it was sort of taking it away. The environment isn't changed. It's the organism, it's DNA, that's changed, and uh, that's what I meant by that. Well, I would think at this point that uh, based on my understanding of the origin of life, and I've, I've looked at this a lot, uh, trying to figure out things like how can you make ribosome, okay? Uh, how can you assemble these molecules? Uh, how can you get sequence that would actually be uh, uh, encoding something that has functional benefit? Uh, functional advantage. And I guess as I'm looking at the whole scheme, the question I asked to Jack when he spoke this morning had to do with how we get all these amazing assemblies, okay? And the amazing assemblies that we're seeing, the self-assemblies, okay, this is nature doing things on its own without external physical help, okay, had to do with what he called energetic landscapes. So that would be uh, a way of saying God has created the universe in such a way that the energetic landscapes that are formed provide preferential kinds of behavior on the part of the components that are operating within those landscapes uh, to give outcomes that would otherwise seem to be quite impossible if it weren't for the energetic landscapes. And I, I assume that was how that was happening, but it looks like magic, right? It looks like these things all just come together for no reason. Uh, Tinker toys won't do that, for example, neither will Legos, because they don't have an energetic driving force. And so what I'm saying is I think that there are ways that God could have built into nature certain pathways, certain topographies, if you will, like my rain example, okay, where water will not go just anywhere. It will ultimately go in a per particular direction. Why? Because there's an energetic uh, driving force. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. It's, it's, I'm not saying that God is doing this in real time, okay, uh, except in the, the fundamental sense that, as the Bible says, God holds together everything. But let's say that he's put, he's put a certain robustness uh, into nature that is not random, that is directional, and that this robustness with this directionality will then lead us not to sort of, as Stephen Jay Gould would say, it's some accidental outcome that is totally unpredictable, but that there is a built-in bias in nature itself as it unfolds that takes us to complex conscious life. It doesn't necessarily have to be complex conscious life that looks like us. There may be some serendipity in there, uh, but there's not serendipity with regard to the kinds of uh, uh, 
life that's going to be uh, at the end of the line, so to speak. Yes. You know, I think that uh, it's a very interesting idea. I'm afraid it would cost a ton of money because I think there's a lot of people working on particularly the origin of life more recently. Huh? Oh, okay. 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 Yeah, interesting. We, we'll visit about this at lunch or so forth. I mean, I think it'd be an interesting thing to do if it wasn't too expensive. Okay. Lauren, come on.